We're in Matthew chapter 16, and in Matthew 16 and verse 15, Jesus asked one of the most important questions that anyone could ever answer. And it's a question upon which one's eternal destiny hangs. If we get this wrong, we are outside the realm of salvation. If we err here, we err eternally. And if we get this right, we have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The question that Jesus asks is, again, Matthew 16, verse 15, who do you say that I am? The reason this question is so significant is because genuine salvation is so often described in Scripture as knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. Jesus said in John 17 and verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God, the only true God, and knowing His Son, Jesus Christ, this is eternal life. Jeremiah spoke about the salvation of the new covenant, and I want you to turn, and we're going to kind of have a longer introduction this morning. I want you to turn to Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 33, and I'll have you kind of flip around here with me this morning as we, as we do some of this. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34, it says this, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one of, each one teach his neighbor, and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the salvation of the new covenant. And the book of Hebrews confirms that this promise, which was originally given to Israel, has now been extended to the church in the new covenant. We celebrate the new covenant every Lord's Supper. This is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus said. And that involves the forgiveness of sins and knowing the Lord. And so we are those whose sins are forgiven and we know Yahweh. Everyone who is in the new covenant has their sins forgiven and knows the Lord. And because that salvation is found in and through God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, then we also know Christ. If you go to Matthew 11 and verse 27, Jesus put it this way there, Matthew eleven twenty-seven: all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. No one knows the Father in a salvific way apart from the Son, unless the Son, unless Jesus the Son chooses to reveal Him. Now this knowing Christ, it's not merely an intellectual thing. It's so much more than understanding facts about him. It's a life-changing knowledge of the person of Christ 
It's an experience of salvation that is found in Christ alone. That's what we're talking about when we talk about knowing Christ. Knowing Jesus Christ is knowing him as a living person. One that you can lean on. One that you can run to in difficulty. It's knowing him as a living person that you can rely on. Or as one who helps you, whether you're in a time of peace or whether you're in a time of trouble. It's, it's this relying on and, and trusting in Jesus Christ. Knowing him means knowing him for all of who he is, as Lord, as master, knowing him as savior, knowing him as our advocate before the father, knowing him as our peace or our teacher or our priest, or knowing him even as our life. He is life itself. Paul spoke of this as the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 3 and verse 7. And he spoke of in Philippians 3.8, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, sometimes knowing Christ is described as a personal relationship. You've probably heard it described that way. And, and it is a personal relationship. But we need to understand what do we mean when we say a personal relationship with Christ? You know, you can have a personal relationship with your dog. You know, you can think that you have a personal relationship with God through Christ and not truly know him at all. And that's why Scripture turns it around sometimes and, and the question becomes, does the Lord know you? Does the Lord know you? Ma- Matthew seven let Let's look at that. Matthew 7 and verse 21, an important kind of concluding section of the Sermon on the Mount Jesus says there, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? These people seem to think that they know Jesus Christ and have done things for his sake. But look what he says in verse 23, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, the true knowledge of Christ will transform our lives such that we increasingly do the will of the Father who's in heaven. It will increasingly enable us to live according to what the the Lord teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. The true knowledge of Christ will reconcile us to God such that God and Christ know us And they will come and dwell with us and be in us by the Holy Spirit. I want you to go to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4, look at verse 8 there. Look what Paul says there. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God... You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? And so truly knowing God means freedom from the slavery to sin. And it means, again, being known by God. Formerly, he says, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and you could look over there at verse 3, Paul makes a contrast between a, a kind of knowledge that puffs up versus love which builds up. And he says in verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. In, 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 the, in other words, there's a, a kind of knowledge of God that results in love for God. And if we have that love for God, then we are known by God. This is referring to our salvation. The kind of knowledge we're talking about is the, the kind of knowledge of Christ and of God that causes us to love him and want to live our lives for him. We're talking about a knowledge that, that comes to recognize the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and takes him as a treasure and comes to love him and live for him and for his sake. This kind of knowledge of Christ is called in scripture an opening of the eyes. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so God turns on the light and lets us see the glory of God and the glory of Christ and we want to live for him as our Lord. This kind of knowledge again is an opening of the eyes, Ephesians 1:18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Or even maybe more literally, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened. This is something that's happened to us in salvation. Our eyes are opened to God and to Christ. Or in Acts 16 and verse 14, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the gospel. That's what we're talking about, this knowledge of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 tells us that this kind of knowledge is a gift of God. It's a gift of God's salvation that he causes us to have faith in Jesus Christ by grace. And again, Jesus describes it as the Father's gracious will to reveal these things to the little children. And again, that's Matthew eleven twenty five and 26. If you would turn to the book of First John, because throughout the book of First John, we see many descriptions of salvation. As John's trying to show us if we truly know the Lord or not. And so there's these many descriptions of, of salvation, many synonyms that John uses, such as fellowship with God, having eternal life, walking in the light, being in the light, having one's sins forgiven, or being born of God. And right along with all of these synonyms for genuine salvation, John speaks about knowing him. And so in 1 John 2 and verse 3, it says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And in chapter 4 and verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And again, in chapter 5 and verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And all of this is introduction to show how important this question is. 
Who you say Jesus is and all of what that means in your life is eternally significant. Who you say Jesus is and all of what that means in your life is eternally significant. Now we're in Matthew chapter 16 and for the past 16 chapters, Matthew has been showing us who Jesus is. But until now, his disciples, they haven't fully recognized him for who he is. They haven't confessed him according to who he is. And in our text, the disciples are finally catching up to us. They're they're catching up to the readers of Matthew. Matthew's kind of let us in earlier about who Jesus is, but now the disciples of the Lord are are kind of catching up to our knowledge. And in our text, Peter is going to confess Christ on behalf of the disciples. And so let's look at our, our text, starting in verse 13, Matthew 16, 13. Really, this section goes all the way to verse 20. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah and one, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, so many of the things that we've been seeing in our study of Matthew kind of come together in this text. We have Peter's confession in verse 16, very important. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus accepts these titles from Peter. He calls Peter blessed for believing so. He says that the father has revealed this to Peter. And so we know that this is true. We have these titles, Christ and son of God. We have Jesus's confession that he will build his church. He says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Literally, the gates of Hades. In verse 19, Jesus mentions keys. And these keys are the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And there's so much here. And and honestly, I have so many questions about what all of this is. You know, what is what does it mean that that Jesus is Christ? What does it mean that he's son of God? What is the church? How is the church built? What are the gates of hell? What are the gates of literally Hades? Is the church on the offensive overcoming the gates of hell or is hell attacking the church with their gates? You know, what is a gate of Hades even? You know, I kind of, there's questions here that that I have. Is Is it a metaphor for death? What is this rock? Is it Peter? Is it Christ? Is it Peter's confession of Christ? And whichever interpretation we take, what does it even mean and how does it apply to us that, that there's this rock and on this rock Jesus will build his church? How is the kingdom of heaven in verse 19 connected to the church in verse 18? 
Does Peter bind and loose Satan by exercising authority over the spiritual realm? Does he open and close the door of entrance to the kingdom of heaven? Does he and the apostles with him bind and loose in the way that rabbis used to when they, when they came up with authoritative interpretations of the law? That's the way some people understand that section. Another view is to connect it with Matthew 18, 18 and to see the binding and loosing as binding and loosing in church discipline. Another question that I have about this text is if these keys are only for Peter or is it for Peter and the other apostles or do we also have access and and are, are we to use these keys, whatever they open and whatever they close, whatever they bind and whatever they loose, is that something that we're to do today? And so there's so many questions and so many topics in these eight verses. We have Christology, we have theology proper, we have soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, we have demonology as far as the, the doctrine of demons, eschatology, the teaching of the end times, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, just to name a few things that are in this passage. And all of that just to say that, that I, I'm going to slow down here and we're going to kind of take our time for a few weeks and, and try to cover some of these things in detail. Even I'm, I need to slow down even just so that I can answer some of these questions for myself so that I can try to help you understand these things in the weeks to come. But really, you could spend a lifetime in these verses. You could kind of jump off of these verses really into everything that Scripture teaches about everything. And we're not going to do that, but we are going to slow down a little bit and, and try to dig into some of these things. Today's message I called, Who Do You Say That I Am? Who do you say that I am? Or who do you say that the Son of Man is based on Jesus' question in verse 15? And as we think about that question this morning, there's really two aspects to that question that I want you to think about as we begin to look at our text. Two aspects. The first aspect here is, in one sense, it really doesn't matter who you say that Jesus is. What really matters is what Scripture says about who Jesus is, right? Do you see the difference there? What, what do you say and what does Scripture say? You know, I've heard people say something along the lines of, my Jesus would never do that. My Jesus would never do Your Jesus? You got your own separate Jesus? You have a Jesus that's different than the Jesus of Scripture? If you have a different Jesus than the historical Jesus who came to earth and worked miracles, forgave sins, and died on the cross to pay sin's penalty and rose from the dead, that's no Jesus at all. And so we need to be careful what we mean when we say, who do you say that Jesus is? See, there is one true Lord Jesus Christ revealed in Holy Scripture. 1 Timothy 5, chapter 2 and verse 5 says, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And we must know the one true God, and we must come to know Him through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said that He and He alone is the way to the Father. John fourteen six. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now we already saw this morning that salvation is knowing God and knowing Christ. And God's whole plan of salvation is designed to reveal 
to us who God is so that we might see him for who he is and come to know him and enjoy him. And so it doesn't matter in that sense who you say Jesus is. Jesus is who he is no matter what you or I say or what you and I think or what you and I believe. But there's a lot of professing believers in the world who have an imaginary Jesus. And the Jesus they know is, is not the Jesus of Scripture, and He's not the Jesus of history. He's not the risen and living Lord of heaven and earth. He's a figment of their sinful and carnal imagination. And therefore, He's no Jesus at all. And to illustrate this, I want to tell you about the time that I met Jesus. I want to tell you about the time I met Jesus. It was the summer of 2012. I don't think I've ever told this to you guys before. It was the summer of 2012, and we had just moved to California. You guys nervous already? (laughs) What kind of doctrine is my pastor teaching? Summer of 2012, we just moved to California. We're getting set up, and, and we're preparing for seminary. And one day I went to the mall to purchase a cell phone. We needed a cell phone, and, and there he was, Jesus, selling mobile phones at the booth in the hallway of the Valencia Mall. There he was, Jesus. Now, I think he probably pronounced it Jesus, if you're with me. Now, I knew that that, that Jesus at the mall was, was not Jesus, my Savior. I, I knew that that was no, he was a different Jesus. He was a different Jesus. But he, get this, he was real, right? He was real. Some Jesuses that people have is just a figment of their imagination, somebody that they've made up in their mind. And so that's a, that, that Jesus at the mall that, that sold cell phones, he was a, a lot more of a Jesus than, than many people have. You see, we need to know the one and the only true Jesus. And we need to be sure that our Jesus is the Jesus. But we need to go further. And and here's the second aspect to this question. Who do you say that I am? You know, once we know who Jesus is, and, and again, that's a lifetime of study, by the way. But once we know who Jesus is, we, we need to ask ourselves, who is Jesus to me. Who is Jesus to me? Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is he to you? You know, you might be able to define Jesus in a flawless, Christologically orthodox statement, and that's good. You know, he's God the Son incarnate. He is very God of very God. He is one person, God the Son, existing in two natures. He's God the Son, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. Homo usius is the Latin. Homo usius, not homo eusius. It it means that he is of the same substance, of the same essence with the Father. He shares equally in the divine nature with the Father and the Holy Spirit, but he also has a fully human nature. God the Son added to himself a human nature when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary. And all of that is true according to Scripture. That's who Jesus is. But you can know that that Jesus came down from heaven for us and for our salvation, and and you cannot be saved. You can can explain Jesus theologically and, and know many things about him, true things about him, and not be saved. 
And so there's an objective truth about Christ, and, and it's critical, and we should know it. We must know it. We have to know the true Christ. But there's also a subjective element that we must respond to Christ. We must see him for who he is and come to him. We must learn from him and take up his yoke and follow him. And so the second part of this question is, is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Is he your treasure, your joy, your delight? Is he your refuge in trouble and difficulties? Is he your strength? Do you go to him in the, the difficult times of your life? And do you find your joy and delight in him in all the times of your life? Is he the joy and rejoicing of your heart? Would you rather live for him and for his sake than have all the treasures of ancient Egypt like Moses? Do you know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ? Do you experience it? Is, is, is it worth anything to you? And so the question then, is he your Lord? Do you count all things lost in comparison to him? Is your goal like the goal of Paul in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead? And can you say with Paul in Philippians 3.12, continuing, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And then he says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says, I, I know the surpassing worth of Christ. And even though I, I don't live it out perfectly in my life, I'm pressing forward. I'm pressing on to be like Christ and to, to conform to his image because Christ is my all. Christ is everything to me. And so as we kind of look at this over, not even just today, but even next week, because I, I'm not going to be able to cover everything I want to today, but but as we look at this, we need to have these two aspects in mind of this question. There's the objective side of this where we ask, who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? And then there's the subjective side. Who is Jesus Christ to me or who is he to you? And so if you have those kind of two aspects of the question, then let's start to look at our text here this morning. First of all, we're going to see the people's view of Jesus. And, and don't worry, we're, we're just going to try to get to verse 17. And even verse 16, I'm not going to cover uh, as much as I'd like to today. But, but let's see, first of all, here in, in the outline, if you're taking notes, the people's view of Jesus in verses 13 and 14. The people's view of Jesus. Now, Jesus and his disciples, they've they've come into the district of Caesarea Philippi. They've left Galilee again. They've gone north, about 25 miles north. I think earlier at some point in this series, I, I kind of wondered if, if this was maybe part of the same trip where Jesus was already in Tyre and Sidon and the region there. Um, but both Matthew and Mark have the events in the same order. Even Luke, even though he, he leaves out some of these details, Luke has basically the same order. 
He has the feeding of the 5,000 and then this event and then the transfiguration. And so it's, it's probably likely that Jesus was in Galilee and then went back uh, north again to the region of uh, Caesarea Philippi. And so Jesus was, if you remember, he was in Galilee. Then he was confronted by the Pharisees. He withdrew from there. He went up to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He healed the Canaanite woman. Then he went back to Decapolis. He fed the 4,000. Earlier in Galilee, he had fed the 5,000. Then he went back across the lake to Galilee again, and then he was confronted by the Pharisees. They asked him for a sign, and he left them and departed, verse 4. So he left them and departed, and now he goes north to Caesarea Philippi. And so verse 13, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and again, that was about 25 miles north of Galilee. This is at the the foot of Mount Hermon near the ancient city of Dan, the, the most northern city of Israel. But of course, it's Gentile territory at this time. And this is the only time that, that I can remember anyways where in the Gospel of Matthew, there's not a crowd surrounding Jesus. Remember, even from chapter 5, verse 23, that summary, there was, there was these crowds following Jesus everywhere. And this is the only time that I think that we don't have a crowd surrounding Jesus. And Jesus and his disciples, they're finally alone. And the only other time, if you think about it, that they've been alone is when they were in the house. And remember, the crowds were surrounding the house. We're not sure which house is the house, but there was the house. And then the only other time was when they were in a boat crossing the Sea of Galilee, when they would have been together in the boat. And so they're alone. And as they're alone, Jesus asks, again in verse 13, he asks the disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And it would seem from their answers that that Jesus was looking for positive opinions only. Remember, some had said that he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. The disciples don't bring that up. But what they do mention, it, although positive here, it falls short of a proper view of the Son of Man. Now, I should say here that when Jesus asked, who do people say that the Son of Man is? This was really Jesus's favorite way of referring to himself. And although Son of Man is a messianic title from Daniel 7, 13, and 14, it was, it was veiled enough that the question doesn't give away the right answer, right? It's not like Jesus says, who do people say the Messiah is? The Messiah, right? It, it's Son of Man. It's kind of this veiled reference to himself. And in fact, Mark even just writes in Mark eight twenty seven, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And so Mark shortens it up for, for us. But let's look at what they say about, about this Son of Man. In verse 14, they said, some say John the Baptist. Some say John the Baptist. And this was the view of Herod. Remember chapter 14 and verse 1? At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Herod had had John the Baptist beheaded and in a kind of a, a strange and superstitious, guilt-ridden understanding, he thought that John had been, been raised from the dead and he, so he thought that Jesus was John. 
And perhaps Herod wasn't alone in identifying Jesus as John the Baptist raised from the dead, but that's what the disciples bring up. And another view then was that he was Elijah. Again, verse 14, others say Elijah. And this was based on Malachi 4, 5, and 6, chapter 4, 5, and 6, which predicted another coming of Elijah as a forerunner to the day of the Lord. And so Malachi 4 says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And you remember that Elijah had gone straight up to heaven in a chariot of of fire. He didn't die. And so the Jews expected Elijah to return. And according to Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, this was going to come before the day of Yahweh. And apparently to this day, the Jews leave an empty chair at the Passover meal specifically for Elijah. At least one of my commentators said so. Another view that people had was that Jesus was Jeremiah. Jeremiah is regarded by the Jews as the foremost of the writing prophets, and he would, you know, we might think of Isaiah, but for whatever reason, the Jews like Jeremiah, perhaps because Jeremiah prophesied the return to Jerusalem. But we're not sure why they thought that Jesus was Jeremiah, but for whatever reason, according to the disciples and according to Matthew, some did. Again, verse 14, others, or still others, different word for others here, think that you are Jeremiah, and then or one of the prophets. Now, one of the prophets, that could include prophets from the past, risen from the dead, or they might have thought that Jesus was a current day prophet, one of the long line of prophets. John the Baptist was regarded as a prophet. Jesus said in Matthew eleven nine, what did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Jesus also referred to himself as a prophet, Matthew 13, verse 57, and they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And all of these views, though positive, they're inadequate. In fact, the first three are erroneous. Jesus was not John. Jesus was not Elijah. Jesus was not Jeremiah. Jesus was a prophet, that's true, but it really doesn't go far enough. It doesn't go nearly far enough. And that's the danger here. You see, a wrong view of Jesus Christ or an inadequate view of Christ will not save. And so if you're believing in a wrong Jesus, again, that's no Jesus at all. And if your view of Jesus is true, but it doesn't go far enough, that won't save either. You see, many people regard Jesus highly. They regard him highly as a a great historical figure or a, a great teacher of his day, even a great religious teacher. But if we don't come to Jesus as Lord and Savior, as Master and as God, as worthy of our worship and worthy of our lives, then we are not worthy of him. A high view of Jesus that comes short of of giving one's life to him to serve him also comes short of salvation. And we saw this already in Matthew chapter 10. Go back there and look at Matthew 10 and verse 37.
Jesus said there, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And we'll see this again in chapter 16. Look at verse 24 of Matthew 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. You see, the people's view of Jesus, as the disciples articulated there, it, it, it has not led them to lose their lives for Jesus' sake. And Jesus says, if you don't lose your life for his sake, if you try to save your life by not giving it up for him, you are going to lose your life. That's speaking about the final judgment. And so the people's view of Jesus, it hasn't led them to, to give up their lives for Jesus' sake. It hasn't led them to worship him and, and to want to live their lives for him. And they are still, even with their positive view of Jesus, they are still outside of the realm of salvation. And that's really a great danger even to this day. And that's why Jesus said, many will say, Lord, Lord, but I will tell them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity. And so let's go then more briefly and we'll look at the apostles' view of Jesus, verses 15 to 17. The apostles' view of, of Jesus is different, and, and Jesus draws it out of them. In, in verse 15, he says to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, as he does in this gospel throughout Matthew, and, and really throughout all the gospels, he kind of takes the lead on behalf of the disciples, and he speaks on their behalf, and he confesses in verse 16 what we already know as readers of Matthew Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, we already knew from verse 1 of this gospel that Jesus is or that Jesus was the Christ. Christ is the Greek translation or the Greek transliteration of Messiah. It's the Messiah, Christos, the Messiah. Um, the Messiah means the anointed one. And when we think about an anointed one in the Old Testament, it was the prophets, priests, and king who were anointed for their ministry. But the anointed one, the anointed one was the ultimate prophet, priest, and king through whom God would accomplish his purposes on earth that is prophesied throughout the Old Testament. And the Jews of that day were anticipating the coming of the Messiah to deliver them from the Roman occupation. And they were looking forward to the prosperity that the Messiah's reign had promised. And so they were looking for this coming king, priest, prophet who would reign on David's throne and, and restore the fortunes of Israel. But unfortunately, they overlooked much of the, the spiritual promises about the Messiah because they thought that, that they were prospering spiritually and they thought that they had no need to repent. 
But Matthew's made it clear that Jesus is this Messiah, that he is the Christ. And I just want to show you earlier in Matthew, the places where Matthew has shown us that Jesus is the Christ. Go all the way back to the very first verse, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And again, that's not Jesus's last name. This is Jesus Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 16 says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And so right from his birth, we know that, that this one is the Christ, the Messiah. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And of course, Jesus is this Christ, and Matthew's genealogy lays that out. In verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And so already in the first 18 verses of Matthew, we've seen that Jesus is the Christ four times. Chapter 2 and verse 4, it says, when the Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And of course, Jesus was born, according to the scripture, just there. Matthew 11 and verse 2, also very important verse in Matthew. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. Now, John at that time was was doubting whether Jesus was the Christ, but Matthew reminds us that these are the deeds of the Messiah. And so Peter, who had already left everything to follow Jesus and already would, would have had some idea that he was the Christ, and, and they had been speaking about that, that, that maybe he is the Christ, now he comes to a full confession and recognition that Jesus is the Christ. And Peter also says here, son of the living God. Jesus is the son of the living God. Now, Matthew has already shown us that as well, that Jesus is son of God. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so the father confirms by a voice from heaven that Jesus is his beloved son and that he's well pleased in him. Then in Matthew 4, Jesus immediately goes into the the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And in verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And again in verse 6, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And the way that those if-you-are statements are written in Greek, that it shows that the devil is assuming that Jesus is the Son of God and that he has just heard it even from the the voice from heaven that spoke it already in chapter 3. 
Now, when this happens, Jesus and Matthew, they don't correct it. They seem to accept that, yes, I am the Son of God, but no, I'm not going to do it your way, Satan. Later on in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 29, other demons recognize Jesus as the Son of God. Verse 29, behold, these demons cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And so the, the demons know that, that Jesus is in charge of the judgment and that he is the Son of God. In 11 and verse 27, Jesus said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And already in Matthew 14 and verse 33, the disciples in the boat worshipped him. Very important. They worshipped him saying, truly you are the Son of God. And of course, Peter's confession again, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. For Jesus to be Son of God means that he shares the nature of God. And he did the things, and we've seen it, that he did the things that only God could do. And he receives worship as only God deserves. In fact, Jesus even told the devil that, that you should only worship God. And yet he receives worship from the disciples on the boat. Now the Jews understood this. If we go over to John chapter 10, and actually why don't we go ahead and do that. Flip over to John chapter 10. They understood that, that Jesus claimed to be God. And so in John chapter 10, Jesus claims to give eternal life to his sheep. Verse 27, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them, look at, look at Jesus, I give them eternal life. Nobody can give eternal life except for God. He has his own sheep. He gives them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Then he says in verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. These people are in Christ's hand and in the father's hand. And then Jesus says, I and the father are one. Then in verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, It is not because of a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself to be God. Make yourself God. And of course, Jesus is God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John have understood Jesus to be God. The Holy Spirit breathed out their words showing that Jesus is God. The Father spoke from heaven declaring that Jesus is the Son of God. And to be the Son of God means to have the same nature as God. Now there's so much more that, that we could say about who Jesus is as Christ and Son of God. Or even just more generally, just who is Jesus Christ. And, and I think we might do that next week. We might dig into this deeper next week. And, and I might kind of show you uh, a biblical Christology. And we'll go to different places to show us who the Lord Jesus is. But I need to wrap this up for today. And, and I want to do so by, by reminding us that Peter's confession 
is not something that he figured out by his own intelligence or by his own study. And I think this is important. I think this will help us here. Let's go, go back to Matthew 16 here. Look at verse 17. <clears throat> See, this knowledge of Christ that we're, we're looking for, this is a gift from God. And Jesus says in verse 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so God the Father revealed Jesus to Peter. And this was an act of divine grace. Again, as Jesus said in Matthew 11, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And then verse 27, we read multiple times already this morning. And so it's not dependent, as we think about knowing Christ, it's not dependent on our intelligence, it's not dependent on our wisdom, it's God's grace that opens our eyes to see Jesus for who he is, and and God will lead us, if we're believers, into a true understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will, he will open our eyes to scripture so that we come to and, and, and grow in an understanding, a biblical understanding of who Jesus is. And also that subjective understanding of Jesus as worth our very lives. It's by God's grace that we come to this. And as the Lord, the Father, opens our eyes and reveals Christ to us, it, it's going to cause us to take him as our treasure and become a disciple and give up the world to follow him. And so the question again for this morning is, who is Jesus Christ to you? Who do you say that I am, Jesus asks you? Has the Father revealed the Son to you? For Peter and the apostles, this would have happened just simply by seeing Jesus, by seeing his works and and through his teaching. And for us, the Father is going to reveal the Son to us through the Word of God. And so I ask again, who do you say that Jesus is? Do you know him? And do you love him? Let's pray. Father, We thank you for our time in your word. We thank you for this amazing, rich passage that you've given us in Holy Scripture. We pray that you would give us a true understanding of Christ, a full understanding of Christ. That we would not only know orthodox theology about Christ, but having known the orthodox theology about Christ, Father, that we would also respond in the way that you would have us respond to your son. We thank you, Father, that you are well-pleased in him and that every true believer also is well-pleased in him. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is our God. And we worship him. We pray that you would help us to worship him now, even in Jesus' name. Amen.